We're in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 4 through 11. And this passage, I think, is a really fascinating text within the framework of Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. Why is that, you wonder? (laughs) Good question. Because it teaches us what it means, actually, above all, to acknowledge our diversity in the unity that God has called us to. And when we read this text, you may be thinking, well, that doesn't really seem like it's what it's about. But actually, in context and through the sermon, I hope that you'll come to see, as I have, that that is fundamental to the text that we're going to read. Now, when it comes to, you know, the word diversity, oftentimes that maybe some of you are hearing this, it's like, oh, goodness, here we go again. Here we have a buzzword. And for you, you might be thinking of things like race or culture or finances or education, And those are fine places to go. Those are really not bad places to go. But diversity actually reaches every nook and cranny of creation. It goes beyond race and culture and socioeconomics. Our God, being infinitely creative and unbound by limitations, having created this world, we should not be in a position to be surprised in the least that he has made an immensely diverse creation. Now, throughout Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, he names the diversity of God's creation in ways that are relevant to our church and the church at the time. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11 together. This is God's word. It is true and it is given to us in love. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11 says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to know the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. This is the word of our Lord. So there are two repeated terms Throughout this section, there are actually several repeated terms, but we're going to look particularly at two because the sermon can't say everything. There are two repeated words that help us see what Paul is getting at here. We have first, variety, and second, same. There's a variety of gifts, but there's the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. That's verses 4 through 6. And these two terms, I believe, are chosen quite deliberately. You see, the church of Corinth at the time 
of Paul's writings was divisive. It was divided for a number of reasons that are discerned throughout the text. But Paul's teaching in our passage today illuminates the church was also divided over a skewed understanding of service and giftings. Paul's message is that diversity is not synonymous with division in the gospel. You can have diverse strengths or weaknesses in the church without dividing. In the gospel, diversity serves the purpose of intensifying the source of our unity. Here are a few natural examples that exist in the world that we know of uh, that illustrate what I'm talking about. A mosaic, for example. A unified mosaic is not beautiful unless it has a variety of colors. <laughs> no one likes monotone mosaics. A unified tapestry is not beautiful unless it consists of a multitude of threads. A unified story is not beautiful unless it has diverse characters who've been well-developed. Diversity without unity is schism. And unity without diversity is homogeny. Paul writes these things to the church because they are a people who forget that their unity is found in something greater. Just like we forget that we are not unified merely by name of Presbyterian (laughs) or Reformed. There's more that unifies us to one another than the pews that we sit in. And so with that in mind, we're going to use Paul's two rhetorical moves in this section to outline the sermon. And there are two points that I want to make and discuss this morning. And those are these. First, there's diversity in the Trinity. There's diversity in the Trinity. And second, there's diversity in the spiritual gifts. There's diversity in the spiritual gifts. Let's start with that first. There's diversity in the Trinity. Paul establishes in verses 4 through 6 that there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. A variety of services, but the same Lord. A variety of activities, but one God. Note that in the statement, each person of the Trinity serves a unique role amidst their unity. Now to a church that's struggling with divisive thinking, remembering that God consists of three distinct persons and yet is unified is the paradigm through which they are called to embrace their unity as a church. And the same goes for us. The maintaining of the uniqueness of the three persons of the Trinity and their unity can shape the way that we see one another in this body. Let's talk briefly about what diversity and unity looks like in the Trinity. Uh, There's one view. uh, My thesis was in early church history, uh, the patristics. And there's a view called uh, perichoresis. It's a fun, you know, big multi-syllable word, perichoresis. Uh, But basically what it means, it actually comes from the title of a dance that would be done at Greek weddings 
where people would dance in these concentric circles, and the circles would overlap, and usually be three or four or more people. And over time, as, as they're dancing faster and faster in these circles, they kind of blur, and they look unified. And, and it's in this dance that each of these individuals have this unified membership to something greater than themselves. And so early church fathers took this as, hey, this is a great example of what's happening in the Trinity. And it is. It's a good example. But just like every single metaphor used for the Trinity, it still falls short. In uh, the Trinity, what we have is mutual indwelling. So it's not just a dance. It's mutual indwelling. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit mutually indwell one another. And so in one sense they dance. In another sense, it's who they are and who they've always been. They're in a state of unity that's beyond what we can understand fully. This is a paradox from our understanding. But we do get glimpses of their unity. And furthermore, I believe, and I think Paul believes this too, (laughs) the greatest glimpse of Trinitarian unity that we can see in this world isn't in a clover or in a sun or in a dance that's occurring at Greek weddings, but actually in the church. No, you did not mishear me. I said the church. (laughs) Let me explain this further. So unity can take place in two very different ways. It may occur, and this is a bit reductionistic, it may occur naturally, or it can occur supernaturally. Naturally occurring unity looks like this. When you come across someone that you just so happen to agree with politically, And you think, wow, I really like this person. They really know the truth. Or when you share a hobby with somebody, and you can do that hobby with them, and you enjoy being present with them. You're unified around knitting, or mountain biking, or drawing, or whatever it is. Or when you just so happen to connect with someone in a way that's indescribable. Naturally occurring unity is dependent on shared interests, positions, or affect. Often it's the basis for friendship, and ultimately it's always the basis for government. (laughs) Supernaturally occurring unity, on the other hand, is based on something far greater. Supernaturally occurring unity was bought for us by Christ himself. Whether we like it or not, (laughs) we are unified in him, And having been unified in him, we can either act with respect to this reality with one another or not. But if we choose to idolize natural unity, like the church of Corinth was doing, and reject supernatural unity that he has purchased for us, we will not do so just to our personal detriment, but to the detriment of one another to the detriment of his body. Now, this supernatural unity that I'm talking about is not comfortable, which is why Paul has to challenge the church of Corinth in the first place. And we too have to receive this challenge so that we can confidently rub shoulders with people that we might not normally like, (laughs) that we may otherwise have no dealings with, Now, all of this is very easy to say from a pulpit, but this paradigm, 
This lens through which we see God and his church is something that we must wrestle with. When we take the gospel seriously and we recognize that we are all unified to one another as brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in Christ, what we find is that there's no room for consumer Christianity. There's no room for consumer Christianity. We cannot just leave a church because we don't like somebody. There are good reasons to leave a church, and there are times for that, to apply our wisdom, to decide whether or not we should. But there's no room for consumer Christianity. The church does not exist to make us feel good about ourselves or to feel fed. And we don't get to choose our churches just on the music style (laughs) or the carpet color. Because ultimately, what we're unified in is not a carpet, it is Christ. And when we live in that reality, it's beautiful. And people are drawn into it. Because in that reality, we have people who disagree with each other about issues and still love one another deeply. So, let's move on to the second point. Because there's also a diversity in spiritual gifts. Paul uses spiritual gifts in this passage to argue his main point to the church of Corinth. He rhetorically uses the nine gifts in verses 7 through 10 to speak to the spiritual reality of our unity amidst our diversity. He, lets, he lists these things. He lists wisdom and knowledge. He lists faith, miraculous hearing, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Now, what I want to say is that this list is not a fully systematized or expansive or exhaustive list of the spiritual gifts. There are actually other gifts mentioned throughout the Bible that aren't mentioned here. And I want to say that the reason for this, I think, is that Paul's main point isn't to give an exhaustive list. If he had intended to do so, he would have done a better job because he does so elsewhere. And for this reason, we actually aren't going to be talking much about healing or miracles or speaking in tongues today. The list of gifts is secondary in importance to Paul's main point. Spiritual gifts are not distributed simply for the sake of individuals. They are not distributed so that progeny may be built up. Rather, the gifts are distributed for the common good of the church. And for all of those who benefit from the church. It's not for the edification or deification of a few, but for generous loving service to one another. Unity in this universal church that we live in, or in the individual churches, don't look like constant affirmation or ignoring issues. It doesn't look like removing our convictions about secondary issues. Rather, it looks like making a conscious effort to affirm and observe the spiritual unity that we have with one another 
in Christ. It looks like speaking the truth in love. Now, I think all of this can be applied in three different scopes. There are three scopes that I think that this can be applied. The first is individual. The second is in this congregation. And the third is with believers elsewhere. First, individual. Our personal view of the church and our diverse gifts must be biblically driven, not needlessly divisive. Which is very easy to say, but is actually very difficult to wrestle with. Thinking through what must be thought of as primary, secondary, or tertiary importance to the Christian faith oftentimes seems impossible when we attempt to do it ourselves. And I think that the problem with that is we aren't supposed to do it ourselves. We have received a history of Christianity that has been working through this for a long time. <laughs> and they have discerned what is of the utmost importance. And we can trust them. We can receive things like the Apostles' Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Nicene Creed, as the basis for our connection to one another in the church. We can hold convictions without being needlessly divisive when we hold the first things first. Just because doctrine can divide, just like it was in the church of Corinth, doesn't mean that we shouldn't have doctrine. (laughs) That's not the solution. We have to be thoughtful about the scriptures, and that means discerning what is true and coming to strong convictions about what we believe to be true in the scriptures. And it also means that we have to be willing to have hard conversations, just like Paul is having with the church of Corinth. This is not an easy letter. If you guys want an experiment for this week, think about the tone that Paul takes with the church of Corinth in calling them out. Uh, But we have to acknowledge that the church is far larger than our tradition. That's what we have to do. Second, so that's first, individual, what we are called to do. Second, in this congregation, corporately, we must acknowledge different giftings within our own church. People in this church, I can only assume because God tells us that it's true, have an array of passions and giftings that fit some of the giftings in this text or in other texts in the scriptures. And so many of you in this church, I can only assume this is true because you're all here, are using your giftings in a way that build one another up. Now, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, well, it's nice that you're saying and that you're saying Paul is saying that I have giftings to serve the church, but I don't really feel gifted. I don't know if I'm really gifted by the Spirit to serve. I'm too young to serve in the church. I'm not young enough to serve in the church. (laughs) This is a safe place to dwell on that. And what I would invite you to do throughout the week, if you don't know what your giftings are, reach out to your closest friends and ask them. They probably know, and they would probably love to tell you. Furthermore, I hope that you can take the opportunity to think not just about what your giftings are, 
but to seek opportunities to use them with one another in this church. God is calling us to be faithful with what he has given us. And furthermore, I'm sure many of you have found this to be true. When you live your life, and we go through seasons of being more obedient or less obedient to the calling that the Lord has for us. But in those seasons where you're feeling like, oh, the Lord has called me to do this thing, and I am doing it, it is spiritually intoxicating. (laughs) It is a delight to the senses. And the same thing is true when we use our gifts to serve one another. So first, individual. We have individual calls. Second, congregational, corporate. You're called as a body, not just as individuals. And third, this local body is not the only church. God's church is everywhere, always, and in all places, at all times. (laughs) And there are other churches in this area. And so maybe some of you have a passion for serving the homeless community. Maybe some of you have a passion for academics. (laughs) Maybe some of you have a passion for seeing Christians equipped to use their finances in a way that glorifies God. And you're looking around in the church and you're saying, wow, I have this gift and I want to use it in this congregation. You should pursue that. But also, there may be opportunities for you to use those gifts while maintaining membership to this congregation with other congregations. When different churches unify around a problem and they attempt to meet that problem for Christ, what happens is people are drawn into the church because it is so beautiful. Oh, I thought Christians were just kind of arrogant. And I thought they were kind of insular. And I thought they were the, the people who posted mean things on Facebook. But you guys are here serving me or whoever it is in the community that you've chosen to serve. <laughs> experiential love, experiential love, means a lot to people. <laughs> and I think that's what Paul is calling the people of Corinth to do, is to love one another in unity in use of their giftings. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul, nearing the end of the epistle, calls the people to donate money to the Jews who were suffering famine. And he wasn't just doing this for the church of Corinth. He was doing this for other churches. There was a need and they had the opportunity to meet it. Likewise with our giftings, We have been given giftings not just for ourselves, but for the building up of the congregation, the building up of one another, and to be a light to our neighbors. That said, we have to use discernment. There are many denominations, some of which are very healthy, and there are probably other denominations in the area that are very healthy, but there are some denominations that are not really Christian at all. (laughs) So, I would invite for you not just to think individually or congregationally, but also interdenominationally about what it looks like to use your giftings to serve one another. To conclude, I'd like to say that Jesus does something very similar to what Paul is doing in this passage today. 
In John 17, Jesus says that he prays for those who believe in him. That the people who follow him would be one. That the church would be one, just as Jesus is one in the Father. But he doesn't stop there. He also prays that we, the church, would be in God. So that the world may believe that he, Jesus, was sent by God. Jesus, in the gospel, does something radical. He doesn't just invite us into unity alone, but as a church, as a whole, we are called into a reconciled relationship with the triune God. We, as a church, are entering into a relationship that has preexisted for all eternity. It is the grace of God that we would be able to enter into such a beautiful and eternal relationship with our Lord and Savior. This is a relationship that supersedes denominations. It supersedes our petty arguments. It supersedes carpet color. (laughs) And it is incomparable to anything else. Let's rejoice and meditate this week on the goodness of our diversity and of God's unity that he is calling us into. Not just alone, but with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have drawn us into something that is bigger than us. That you have invited us to be unified with people that we would normally disagree with. And in being unified with people that we would normally disagree with, I pray that you would humble us and you would help us to realize that we are finite. We are not omniscient and we have a lot to learn from one another. Would your love mark our lives now and forevermore? It's in your name we pray. Amen.